Hey, spirit junkies. I'm here to talk to you today about self-care. And this is something I have to constantly reignite with. It's, it's easy for all of us to just get so hooked into all that we have to do for everybody else, all that we have to get done, and all that we have to accomplish. And we completely detach from all that we have to do to nurture ourselves. The cost of living crisis isn't just hitting us all at home, but on the public services on which we all depend. New figures from the TUC show across the country, childcare costs are rising much faster than our pay packet. No human hurt. The elderly population is growing. It's a real problem. Someone we mostly care for people in their homes. I can tell by the way. Look after my mum and my nan. You know, I do care what they think. If you let me. I'm blessed to have a home and a husband to care for and follow. I'll take care of you. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Keir Milbin, and today I'm joined by my my very careful friends, Nadia Idle. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we're talking about care <laughs> <laughs> so i can't remember who who thought of this um topic actually i think it's one, one that might have emerged uh, organically as we were talking um but uh, we always start with this question why are we why why has it come up why are we talking about care now why is care the issue one of the issues of the time well partly it's because it's something people are talking about quite a lot there's been some very interesting books published about it but I think that's the culmination of a history of people talking about this issue quite a lot over the past 10 years or so. Uh, what do you think, Nadia? Um, I think it's something that we want to talk about because we're in general, I would say, we're a group of people who care about other people and we care about people being cared for. But also the politics of care is a really interesting one and something that I think we've all been in some way involved in, in the various different political groupings that we've been um, in over the last few years. Um, and also because with, you know, the, the trends of the last 15 years, I think it's safe to say that people don't feel cared for. Um, so it would be interesting to kind of deconstruct like, what those different forms of care are, why people are talking about it now, like you both said, but also like what that means. And in a practical sense, like where are those spaces in which care takes place? And in a very literal sense, um, what it looks like. Um, but also, of course, the just the the simple kind of economics uh, around late capitalism and um, jobs and the care industry, so to speak, and automation are all things that are, are interesting to think about and kind of very close to some of the issues that, yeah, we feel are really ACFM. So I think that's why we're talking about care. Yeah, it is a very ACFM topic, isn't it, care? It's a bit surprising we haven't talked about it before. But I think I think you're right as well. I mean, one of the things that's pressing at the moment is the cost of living crisis. And, you know, that will take its effect on people's lives uh, as a crisis of care, there's a sort of crisis of care. There's a gap in care, basically, is people work more and more and have less time for care. And then there's the other thing, which is that um, more and more of employment is in in care work, basically. 
so both of those things push push this topic of care and other sort of related topics we'll probably talk about social reproduction which is that's we'll introduce what that concept means when we when it when it comes up but those sorts of issues have really risen to the fore of of politics and in fact if we think about like the the history of left politics and left thinking you'd say that like that care work and reproductive work has risen up the agenda uh, because it used to be obscured to a large degree by a focus on production productive work etc so we probably talk about all those sorts of things as well i think well we should explain what some of those terms mean i think i mean when we talk about care in this so far when we're using this word mm. care we're referring to forms of social activity that involve nurturing or looking after or healing or so everything from parenting to aspects of teaching to medical work to uh, looking after people who are infirm in some way this is all what we mean by care yeah that that's important like i think that's that's all of those different things fall in with that within that wide definition doesn't it yeah and and by production we mean basically manuf- manufacturing i mean people you know when we you talk about the fact that historically radical economics and political organization was focused on the idea that the really important thing people did in society was to produce stuff to make stuff and to focus on care is to focus on care is is really about it's not making stuff it's about making people and keeping mm. people alive and it obviously is a pretty important topic from that point of view. Yeah, that, the distinction between like productive work and reproductive work, that sort of takes you into a sort of Marxist discourse where this social reproductive work comes up, um, which I think we should introduce a little bit later, actually, perhaps. But like, yes, yeah, so, but uh, but care has got quite an expansive, like there's lots of different jobs and work. There's lots of different types of work, which include a caring element, even if it's not the only thing that they do. So Nursing, for instance, is just care work, although it's probably quite a bit of admin, isn't there? But it's, pri- it's primarily care work, whereas a teaching is certainly, I think that's care work, but it's definitely reproductive work, And the, but there's also sort of disciplinary aspects to that. And in fact, there's disciplinary aspects to quite a lot of care work because we're trying to reproduce, maintain, you know, facilitate people staying alive, basically, or living, perhaps living better. Um, but at the same time, you know, care work takes place within a capitalist society in which there's a disciplinary aspect of, of, of trying to mold people so that they fit in current society. And I think that was, that's one of the tensions. Okay, a lot of listeners to the show will be familiar with this concept of social reproduction, and a lot won't. But it's an idea that comes out of Marxist feminism. So in, a, in the Marxist feminist register, the idea of social reproduction is the idea that there's all these activities that have to go on just in order for human bodies to be kept alive. And the idea is that understanding society from a broadly Marxist perspective, the function of those activities is to reproduce labour, to, to, to make sure that labour keeps being available and keeps being able to labour. And that's what the work of mothering, of keeping house, of medicine, and all these things are doing. But there's always been a, a feminist critique of that, a little in a way, which says, well, that's it's not necessarily right to say that those forms of activities should only be seen as reproducing labor because they're necessary to reproducing humans whether humans are laboring or not and they've they've always been necessary to reproducing humans and in some sense they're they're actually more fundamental at, at social activities than they are of 
than our almost any form of, of work is so or other forms of work i think that's what makes that whole re- social reproduction framing quite useful i think because it says like there's a dual nature to social reproduction you know from the from the perspective of the capitalist economy there is some work that needs to be done in order to reproduce a commodity called labor basically um and and as far as the capitalist firms concerned that appears as a cost on a balance sheet the same as all the other commodities and so that is subject to the pressure of competition to sort of to squeeze that to reduce that cost basically but labor isn't the same as any other commodity because it's made up of like living human beings basically and they are much much bigger that they have bigger needs than just this commodity called labor and they've got a huge much much bigger potential than basically any any form of labor basically and those needs and what those needs are intersect but with how society is organized at the time so in order to produce you know like a a a male worker who goes to you know his job in the factory in a kind of like fordist sense then you have to have you know the housewife that produces the the food and take care of him and perhaps make sure that he has enough as enough sex that he's expecting to get so you know he doesn't get agitated and all of these things within a certain patriarchal model for example that's not the only way of doing it but under different kinds of social arrangements that are economically viable under capitalism, there will be certain needs of what that care is and how it's organized. And apart from all of that, there's the level, as you just mentioned, Care, where like, you, there are just some basic stuff you need to do. Like there needs to be food and there needs to be somewhere to sleep and someone needs to sort that out. Yeah, there's the idea that like there's a limit to how much you can squeeze the cost of labor because you know that that if you squeeze the cost of labor those those costs get dumped onto other care providers and so in the fordist era you know the housewife and and the family etc but i think that like what what's useful about the, this dual nature that it's we're talking about labor this one thing and but this labor is made up of human beings which are much much bigger is that like you know that means that labor has this very different structure to other commodities i.e it's much bigger it has these needs so it will rebel if it gets squeezed too much or if its expectations get bigger than 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 this category of labor for instance so i think that helps us understand something like a teacher has got these two things part of their role is to discipline kids basically so they fit into the world of work but of course the other part of that is to help these kids grow into flourishing human beings (laughs) those two those two aspects of care work quite often come into conflict with each other and within some forms of socialist feminism you know they argue like look this is one of the inherent contradictions in capital that keep producing various crises of care basically because capital's capital's drive is to drive it to squeeze it squeeze it into the cat into the force reduce people to mere labor and reduce the cost of that labor and it's just you know the it's inherent in human beings to be more than that, to try to be as much as they can be and to, you know, to prevent the, the cost of labor being squeezed because the cost of labor being squeezed produces the result of human suffering. And so capital relies on this reproductive work, but it constantly pushes and strains it and like undermines the very thing that it relies on, if you want to put it that way. And so you continually have these sort of crises of care, and we're definitely in the middle of one now, because that's what the cost of living crisis is. 
and because you know neoliberal capitalism is so clever and dynamic and good at co-opting things is able to create a discourse around self-care and bringing in all of these sort of different measures into the workplace which we'll talk about as well in a bit you know instead of giving workers the proper care and time and wages that they need in 2005 Vashti Bunyan released her second album after a gap of 30 odd years, I think. The album was called Look Aftering, which I think is a really lovely phrase. Bunyan famously has this sort of pastoral vibe to her songs. They're sort of childlike and deliberately so. And look aftering just sounds like a, it's just a wonderful, wonderfully invented verb to describe a sort of you know act of caring or you know look after. I'm look aftering the children. I often think. Uh, and the first track from that is called Lately. So we could hear a bit of that. sleep in the same bed why won't you let me touch you why does it have to be like this do you think at a basic experiential level is there something that all of these notions of care have in common because we were talking when we were planning the show we were talking about for example ideas like touch and holding the fact that they're almost all forms of care this isn't the case with teachers but that's also partly why teachers are conceptually in a sort of gray zone as to whether they're care workers or not that the people certainly the people we refer to as care workers they all have to touch other humans bodies in a way that most kinds of work today don't involve and i think you wanted to talk about that didn't you nadia Yes, I do. And I think because, you know, when we talk about these, you know, especially about social, well, not not particularly about social reproduction, but when we talk about care and kind of abstracted terms, I think it's often easy to forget that what we are talking about is if you're taking care of an elderly person, you know, it involves, you know, the physical moving of their body. It involves, you know, uh, cleaning their bodies. It involves giving them food and and str- like the the little kind of micro physical interactions that make huge difference to to human beings' um, engagement with the world and to and to their happiness. You know, it's a little pats on on the hand. It's like a little bit of a stroke on a shoulder. That care work. This is the stuff that care workers in care homes and and nurses and you know mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and people taking care of other people do 
all of the time without thinking. And when human beings do not have that, and you know, the the experiment of the pandemic was a definite, you know, this it brought this discourse out into the mainstream. I mean, this is stuff we're talking about, not being able to hug people. Like it makes a it, it has a huge effect on human beings. Now, different societies might, for you know, cultural uh, reasons, organize the rules about who can touch who in different ways. Um, but touch is central to to you know babies becoming full cognitive humans. So you know, as as we were saying when we were, we were preparing for this, uh, and I think this is your term, Jeremy, that s- some of these forms of care are biosocial. Like it goes back to what you were talking about here. Like we're not just talking about r- the reproduction of labor. This is what human beings need, and if human beings don't get that then you have all sorts of individual psychological but also social problems and you know and you can have a meta analysis of the effect of touch on a society that comes up with all sorts of interesting outcomes and i think that's a central uh, part of care and talking about care and realizing what care actually looks like or feels like in a, in quite a practical sense yeah what does care feel like yeah and why questions around automation are just um i think removed from the reality of the human experience i think i like the way you put that though about there are different like historically that there are different sort of regimes probably about who can touch people who can touch someone when (laughs) i mean and as a as a um an aging man i'm very aware of that (laughs) because you know it's it's a real it's a big thing around you know the reproduction of masculinity about who about who you can touch, especially when you can touch other other men. <laughs> like I've got a, a whole set of friends that um, I know from from clubbing, raving, etc. And I definitely I might not have seen them for for a long time. When I see them, we'd be straight in with the hugs much more than you know friends I I know from watching football, etc. <laughs> and which are only allowed to hug in very very peak experience moments after a goal or something. Yeah. Well, um, there are, there are certain class A substances which facilitate that in different uh, environments. Well, I would never take that, but yes, of I get your not. point. We would never, we would never, we would never ever condone uh, or or even talk about illegal substances on this show. But yes, and we were talking about this when we again when we were preparing for this and thought maybe we should need to do a whole episode on touch. But I think for the purposes of what we're talking about, I just think it's important to remember in a practical literal sense what we are talking about as we go through this episode because we will be talking about you know a lot of 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 theory and and political problems um around this but a lot of the time it involves touch can i just problematize that though because you could expand the you could expand the idea of like what is care work in particular because it's like direct caring which which is sort of i don't know embodies is the wrong word but more of a visceral anyway involves like direct human human to body to body sort of relationships in some sort of way, but then there's all of the stuff, all of the stuff which creates the conditions in which caring can take place of indirect work, such as like you could totally argue that like cleaning work is care, or is part of care work, shopping, going shopping, that sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like that is not directly caring, but it is part of it sets the conditions upon which caring can take place. So if you include that, it expands it a little bit more. I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. 
Yeah, it does. I'm not sure why we want to expand the categories. Like, I mean, maybe, like, why is it useful politically to think about, like, just to be provocative to you, Keir, why do, why do we need to include teaching and shopping when they're so, like, are those the political junctures? Do they fit in with other care issues? Yeah, if we go back to that idea that like one of the one of the inherent contradictions of capitalism is this is is absolutely focused on care work basically, you know, and, and this dual nature of labour and reproducing human beings. Um, but if you expand the concept, the category of care, you can see that more and more parts of work and more and more workers are subject to that contradiction to some degree, and you can help if that contradiction between you know you know reducing the cost of labour and squashing human beings, et cetera. And therefore, capitalism keeps undoing the ability of, of human beings to be reproduced, et cetera. Like, if you say that's that's one of these inherent crises, if you expand who's included in care work, then you can then that crisis can be used to help explain some of the some of the contradictions, apparent contradictions in that work. So I think it's useful when you think about teaching to say, look, there's there's definitely caring for human beings. Right, involved in that and trying to let them flourish as human beings and develop as human beings, but there's definitely a disciplinary role, and that comes from that sort of contradiction. I think that's why that that's why it might be useful to to, to expand the concept, the category of care work. Yeah, then maybe it could maybe then it could be argued that one of capitalism's way of solving dealing with something that like you know needing to shop for food because one needs to eat and in a, in a practical kind of modern society you need to go get that food because you know. You're, most of us are not growing it in our in our houses. Then, then that's where you know things like Amazon and Deliveroo and whatever come in from a recipient's perspective because you're solving the problem of having to deal with care the the need for getting food, which is important for care, um, in a kind of human social relationally way because it's it's remove it's kind of making it a much more transactional relationship but then again it comes back to the thing that you know there are actual real workers involved in ordering ordering those things like is our delivery workers care workers they sort of are in some ways are they they're doing that you know producing the the, the conditions upon which care can take place I'm not sure it might be stretching it a bit to include but I think it's, it's it, it, you'd have to take a step back and be like well what are the conditions where people can only live off takeaways. I mean, I also think takeaways yeah, are expensive absolutely. and the vast majority of people like actually don't live off takeaways in the way they, they do in some postcode areas in central London. But there are people who are working, in general, there is a trend where people are working ridiculous hours to make the wages that they need and therefore are dependent on other workers to kind of stop in those gaps of time that you have. Yeah, 100%. It's like this long-term stagnation in wages. So wages reducing, in fact, because you know they can't keep up with the cost of living. Uh, and so what do you do? You work longer hours, etc. Um, so that cuts into the time you used to have for care work. So you have to put that onto the market, basically. And that's a, you can see that as like this, you know, this negative spiral in down. But you can also say, you know, you can see it going in other directions. Like that's part of the reason for this huge trend of migrant care workers. So people brought in from other countries to do child care um, or, or even just, you know, other sorts of care work because, you know, you've, you've got to solve that care gap to some degree. Like, that's one of the great things about this, about capital moving into this sort of, or, or more and more of like care work being pushed into, into direct commodification is that like it has to, like you have to address care needs or you get into human suffering. So 
It's a bit like, you know, the huge expansion of costs for childcare. Like the, the cost of childcare is just absolutely phenomenal. It's going up and up and all, all the time. But that's because, you know, parents will address that need for their kids to have a good life before they address other needs. Do you know what I mean? So for capital, it's got a real, you know, it's a really attractive market. I think if we're defining care work, then I think what's becoming clear is that it, the boundaries of it are pretty blurry and it blurs into service work generally. Yeah. And it also blurs into areas of activity that I would more describe as socialisation. So I think that, I think teaching is an interesting example. I mean, there is an aspect of teaching that is care work. That's what traditionally in the teaching profession is referred to as the pastoral element. Mm of teaching yes. but but it's something that's very variable between different countries and different cultures like the extent to which the pastoral element of schooling is supposed to be a responsibility of the teachers and there's some countries in which it really isn't it's and it's it there are there are other people in the school who are professionals whose job is actually to look after the emotional needs and the and to even to discipline children so you know there's a sort of gray area yeah i'm keen that we we we're also talking about the stuff that takes place inside the home. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Because it's just so it's just so central to to bringing up human beings, you know, and like what like neglect of care. If you look, if you flip it round, like what neglect of care is is just it's so stark. And what happens to a society when 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 human beings do not have the f- the capacity both psychologically and physically to be you know comforting other human beings you know when society when you know titanic is sinking and at the moment we're in an economic and political situation that is really rough and it could be argued both ways it could be argued that what is propping society up is these human relationships which is all you know goes unmonitored goes un um uh, that that's that's unpaid, etc. I'm not arguing necessarily that it should be paid, but it's it's the human beings taking care of each other in their social groups that props the whole system up. And on and on the converse side of that, people have less time and capacity and psychological space to give that care to those around them because they're so stressed about their material conditions. Right? One hundred percent. Yes. Well, that's right. Well, uh, well, I mean, I think that does speak to something that is fundamental to practices of care and that is that they are they they're in there and this does also apply to things like teaching but there's something about them which isn't commodifiable you can commodify access to them but you can't you can't reduce the relation the relationships between like a teacher and a student or a doctor and a patient or a nurse and somebody there looking after, or a child and a, a, someone looking after them, you can't reduce that to a retail transaction. Like it doesn't take the form of a of a commodity that you can simply buy and sell. All you can buy and sell is access to them. You can buy and sell the the time of the workers, the what Marx calls their labour power, their time basically. You can buy and sell access, but you can't actually commodify the thing itself and the more you try it to the extent that you try to do it you basically make it impossible to do but the more you try to make it take the form of a commodity the more you make it impossible completely that's a great distinction i think yeah and i think that actually comes to like a really like an even deeper more fundamental aspect of human life which is that everyone everybody wants to feel loved and valued 
Yeah. Like all human beings do. And and physical care and or, you know, you're right in terms of the teaching. It doesn't necessarily need to be physical. It's just the authentic engagement with human beings in the moment and seeing people in a conversation and seeing them in a room is one of the things that that makes you thrive as a human being. And if you don't have that, you grow up to be a CEO and a psychopath. <laughs> I'm going to make a wild statement there. But you know what I mean? Like you can, this often it seems like these policies are set by people who you know are sociopaths or like they 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 themselves are lacking this is a wild generalization but i'm going with it are lacking in in the kind of in the kind of human relations which make people happy like the things that make us happy people have to have a certain trust for each other you know what i mean and then people become necessary to each other so that environment, you know, will make you kind of get to understand the guy, you know, working over here because you want him to be reliable. Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain, we all have sorrow, but if we are wise, we know that I think we should play uh, Lean On Me by Bill Withers from 1972. It's a song about caring, you know, lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. That's definitely what we're talking about. The interesting thing about Bill Withers is he grew up in a mining town and then he like moves to LA to become a musician, etc. So when he writes the song, he's in LA and he's, it's sort of in, in reference to the fact that LA does not have this strong solidaristic community that he grew up in in the mining town and mining towns tended to have. You know, it's, it's in part a song about the lack of that solidarity in his life now. I think when we think about care, I mean, fairly spontaneously for a lot of us, the, the thought of somebody looking after children is what is one of the most basic and obvious examples of care that, that human beings really have required to survive. Actually, you know, we keep saying humans, but we're actually all mammals to some extent require it. There are other animals where, you know, babies, young are born and then they just go out off into the world. But there are no mammals hardly that do that so they all require some care but on the other hand humans also are, are distinct and they require care from older humans for much much longer after they're born much longer than any other uh, animals so there is something specifically human about it as well but but childcare, we the the example of the childcare market in Britain, that's always one of my favourite teaching examples of a, of a neoliberal policy, which has been perceived for wholly ideological reasons. That So the policy in Britain is historically back in the golden age of post-war social democracy, there was a, a 
there was some extension of just ordinary state-provided childcare. And this is what you get in most countries in Western Europe. Like in places like France, you basically just, you send kids to nursery the same way you send them to school. Like it's provided locally as part of education provision and as part of social provision. And But the the big expansion of childcare in Britain happened um, as women, as it became clear that women going into the labour market or, you know, for all of their lives, full time, had become a, an irreversible norm. In the, when Britain was also in at the height of neoliberalism in the nineteen nineties, and the childcare regime, which was brought in by the Tories and then supported by New Labour, and then extended again by the Tories, it's this voucher system. It's this mad system where the government gives you these vouchers to pay for childcare, but then you use those vouchers to purchase it from private suppliers, private providers of childcare, and they have to com- they're supposed to compete with each other. So instead of just having collectively, locally, state-organised childcare, then you have this mad system of a of this contrived market. And of course, it doesn't work for a reason. Any economist could tell you why that's not going to work. It's not going to work because there is a thing that economists call market exit. Market exit is what happens when certain participants in a marketplace are not making enough profit from their activity, so they leave the market. And if there isn't a certain level of scarcity in in the marketplace, then everybody involved will not be making enough profit, and that will drive some market exit. And so what happens invariably everywhere in the country is that you end up with a situation where there aren't enough suppliers of childcare for it not to be really expensive and there to be really long waiting lists and for it to be really stressful for people. Because if there were enough, the profit margins wouldn't be big enough for the people selling it. So it's, a, it's not, and the government is still spends loads and loads of money on it. Yeah, and that is because this is a great example of how economic uh, policy and all sorts of different social policies in this country and elsewhere are driven by ideology and not logic or practicality or efficiency, because the amount of time and money wasting in some of these systems is just staggering. It's so inefficient. Yeah, and nobody likes it. No parent thinks... Doesn't work for anyone. No parent thinks, yeah, I want to leave my child with an institution who mainly sees them as a source of profit. Like no one or does. an institution where they've diversified into into that market yesterday, but yeah. really what they do is they produce rat poison or some <laughs> shit. Like we saw yeah. with the pandemic. That happened I in the know. pandemic. Do you know what I mean? It's fucking ludicrous. I don't think it's just ideology, though. Okay, go on. No, it, as in, uh, it would. It, it is ideology if you think that, like, the, the government, Thatcher government and New Labour, their, their aim was, how do you most efficiently deliver care services in this country? That wasn't was the that aim. their aim? That wasn't their aim. No, no their aim was how do we turn care into something we can be turned into an asset so people can can gain profits off it, because like that that's how power is distributed in this in this society. So you okay, know financial right, interests right. etc. They get their needs addressed. That you know so it's not just ideology. It's also the balance of forces and who's hegemonic sort of thing. Fair enough. I think I made that point because there is still a strongly held belief amongst people that even if they don't like capitalism, that capitalism is somehow efficient and capitalism yeah, yeah. isn't. I did my whole dissertation on this. I'm really passionate about the yeah. specific subject. It's completely not. It wastes resources like yeah. fuck. It's 
terrible in organizing resources. Yeah, the ideology is this belief that the markets are always more efficient than any other form. It's widespread, but I think it's really under pressure of the last the last decade in particular. Yeah, uh, basically because there's no there's no there's not there's not many competitive markets. <laughs> there's monopolies and oligopolies, etc. Yeah, and exactly. there's price gouging and rent extraction everywhere you look. Basically, yeah, there's com- competition is so not. <laughs> it's a good point, actually. We should do a whole thing on competition. I think it was really something we should have pushed a lot harder when we had the leadership of the park. We should have pushed a national childcare service. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very hard. And that would have been much more popular than the, the very vaguely defined National Education Service. Next time round, guys, put it on the <laughs> put list. Put it on the list. <laughs> well, just... In 20 years' time, well, possibly nine years, possibly nine. Because everybody hates it. It's, it. it's one of the features of contemporary capitalism that everybody hates. And people just, and it is, it is sort of capitalist realism. Like it doesn't even occur to people these days. That, yeah, this is a stupid way to organise childcare. Nobody likes it. Mm. It is really interesting to think about how those, like, cons- I mean, the debates around childcare and like how childcare is organised, what childcare should be, they do touch really profoundly on conceptions of of what it means to be human and conceptions of gender. So mm. it's obviously really important. It's important to our understanding of, of of what kind of humans we want to be, like how do we treat children and how do we raise them and how do we organise it between ourselves. And obviously, it's a really, really central issue in feminist debates, like historically. It's a central demand of feminism that the burden of having exclusive responsibility for childcare should, in some way, should be taken away from women. And, I, you know, I always used to say this to students that it's really, you know, I've, you know, I'm really into like feminist theory. I'm really, I, I'm really, I've always been really interested in feminist philosophy and stuff, but. I would do this series of lectures for students and I would introduce them to all this exciting like feminist theory. And then the end of it, I'd say, but you know, the bad news is like all the historical evidence is that you can have the most exciting philosophers in the world uh, talking about the nature of gender. And that is not what is going to deliver actual feminist outcomes. The really boring news is if you look at global comparative studies, there is one thing more than any other thing that is going to deliver equality for women across the board, and that is socialisation of childcare and social provision of childcare, which is something in my experience, at least my generation, like, you know, people in their early 20s really didn't want to hear because usually they think they're never going to have children. So, And it's quite boring. It's much more interesting to talk about the fluidity of your gender and sexual identity than it is to talk about... What, what are you going to do if you want to have kids one day? The reality of having kids, yeah. Yeah. But then the question of how well, how do you distribute care for children in a way that it isn't just women's responsibility? How you do that is the big political issue. And of course, the thing we've just been talking about, that totally neoliberal childcare model, it comes out of a particular way of answering that question. Like it is one answer to that question. And it's the, it's the answer supplied by a kind of neoliberal feminism, which says, okay, what feminism wants is to facilitate women competing in the labour market on equal terms with men. And that's the only thing. That's the only thing that that we're going to offer to women as a way of resolving that historic set of problems. And the question then is, well, what are the alternatives? What are the other things we want? And I think historically there's, there's probably two main sets of answers. There are sets of answers which stress the idea that the state or social institutions or the collective or the commune, the village, whatever, the tribe, however you want to conceptualise it, take responsibility collectively for the care of children. But 
can we take a step back? I know I, I know you're on a roll, but that is a conceptualization of changing the way that society is organized. What would the answer be for the way society is organized now, which is more or less the nuclear family, if we're talking about the UK? Um, Do you see what I yeah, mean? Yeah, well, that's what I was about to say. I mean, the other right, okay, so go the on. other the other response is to focus on the question of simply distributing that labour between men and women, at least getting away from the assumption that it's women who will look after children, and and somehow encouraging or facilitating men within the indeed within the institutions of the established nuclear family participating more in childcare. That has been a big social change that we, that we've lived through. I would say. Mm. Like comrades and colleagues who are now in their 60s and 70s have said to me more than once, actually, people who, people who now have children actually my age and they, have gra- and they have grandchildren, the age of my children, that have said to me more than once, this is really one of the biggest changes, they think, in terms of how people live their lives, the way in which uh, men and fathers are expected to be in, involved with childcare and, are, and, and want to be, and it's been normalised. And that is, a re- that is a really big change. It's a big change. It's really, really quite fundamental because it's it's stark when you see it in societies and families where, you know, where the the husband or the ma- or you know the lead man or whatever in the house is completely absent from any engagement with the children whatsoever, which is really common and of course was very common in the UK. Now you two know this, but uh, my father wasn't at my birth when I was born. Sorry, this is a therapy session now. <laughs> I claim my free therapy session. <laughs> I know that. I know exactly where my dad was when I was born because uh, Leeds were playing Chelsea in a replay of the FA Cup. And he was watching that when I was born. And that was the expectation, basically. Um, Leeds lost in a very contentious uh, match. <laughs> 2 1. Uh, very, very uh, a fierce battle, lots of fouling. And uh, Leeds United still have a song that we sing about that uh, that match that commemorates my birthday. I couldn't imagine not being there for my daughter's birth. It would just, like, I couldn't imagine it. It would just be unthinkable. And yet for my dad, it was, you know, even if he'd wanted to, and, you know, he was a lefty, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, the hospital wouldn't have him in there for a start. You know, they, it, like that sort of idea of like in one generation, that sort of shift illustrates your point. And I managed to get my Leeds United story. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, sung almost as a child. You've sung about your parents. Your father's appeared on your records. The last record was dedicated to your mother. I mean, and people have talked about the childlike quality of your voice. Is this a record that is made by a mother rather than a child? Yes, I think it probably is. I mean, has the process of motherhood bringing up a son, that has changed the way that you compose and write and perform, do you think? Yes, I think it has. One of the things that's interesting about some of the sort of, um, the kind of wave of of feminine and kind of women-led rock music in the 70s, the second half of the 70s, people like Patti Smith and Kate Bush, is the way they are talking quite openly about experience of motherhood and maternality. And Kate Bush's first album is called The Kick Inside, which is a, was an explicit reference to, you know, the feeling of pregnancy, which is, is very interesting, given that rock music as a form up to that point had been so completely male-dominated. It had really, the only form of embodied experience it had been interested in was the experience of adolescent male sexuality. It's pretty much, that was all it was interested in. And then you start getting pretty much clear, pretty clearly as a, directly under the influence of things like women's liberation, you start to get people working mostly in the rock idiom and they're singing about very different experiences. And experiences which have something to do with maternality and and the way in which maternality is absolutely 
bound up with the an experience of the self and the body which isn't just um you know which isn't wholly individualized and which is inseparable from relations of care i hear him before i go to sleep and focus on the day that's been i realize he's there when i turn the light off and turn One of the most memorable songs from that album is The Man with the Child in His Eyes, which again is a really interesting, lyrically, it's a really interesting meditation on the ways in which relations of dependency, passivity and activity can shift and modulate like beyond the very classical kind of mid-20th century idea of the active, responsible, paternal man and the passive, infantilized yet maternal woman. And of course, it's always good to play a bit of Kate Bush. When my first daughter was born, I got all kinds of advice from colleagues and comrades about how one should raise children. And it was really interesting to note, like how the extent to which theories of theories of appropriate childcare were and child rearing were really important ideal sites of ideological contestation. Mm. So I got told by people who both identified as anarchists, actually. I got told on the one hand that we should do that thing where you just leave the kid to cry for hours. So they just... Controlled to, crying. Yeah, to control... I got told oh, to do God, controlled fucking, crying. I found that so stressful. No, we just You're supposed to leave it. the door... Yeah, you, no. leave, you, we tried it and it's like, you have to put, put my daughter maid down. You go out of the room and she cries for like 30 seconds. You go back in, come for the come out and she cries for me. Yeah. Oh my God, one of the most traumatic things. Fuck <laughs> that shit. Mm, parents, I know. Nobody, I mean, yeah. I mean, let's, let's not get into like criticizing some whatever parents need to do to cope with the fact that bringing up no, kids is really right. hard. No, and just I'm... being slightly aware of that. Like it's fine to like talk about the different things, but I don't want us to be like, you know. Well, I did uh, it. I did it. You know, I found it traumatic, but. The other theory I got told was the opposite. It was attachment parenting, where you're supposed to leave. You're supposed to um, attach yourself to the child. Yeah, you're supposed to carry the child all the time. But also, I mean, there's two sides to it. The thing everybody remembers and freaks out when you hear about it is, well, you're supposed to just carry the child all the time until they're like four or something. But the other side of it is because it's all based on studying the way Indigenous people raise children. you're also supposed to not just be having just the mum and dad raise the child. You're supposed to have this whole, a tribe. You're supposed to have a whole community of friends do it. So you can pass the child around. So somebody's holding the child all the time, but it's absolutely not supposed to be just mum and dad. You're supposed to be a whole kind of collective thing. And the children are supposed to grow up in these large social groups where they're mingling with other children who are not just their siblings all the time. And... I mean, from my observations, you know, as a fairly experienced parent now, I totally buy that. I totally buy, yeah, 
we're social creatures. You know, we, the nuclear family and bourgeois individualism are basically suboptimal institutions and, or negative ideologies. But those aren't the conditions under which the actual material and physical conditions under which most of us have to do our caring and to bring up children and to care yeah, for exactly. others don't facilitate that. I mean, I was always, I've always been really jealous of people who manage to like bring up their kid in a collective house. And I do know people who've done it, but they all had trust funds and <laughs> well that's the answer then more resources that's well fine. no no i mean i this is the point since we're on this topic like i don't i don't get to talk about my upbringing very much on this show um but i i i've i've always had this kind of I don't know, like superiority complex over having grown up, maybe for good reason, or maybe just because, you know, I was that kind of child, but um, for having grown up in a, in, not in a nuclear family. So you've both grown up in nuclear families, is that right? Yeah. And you both now have nuclear families. So that's how you arrange. Yeah, mostly. I mean, it was a single parent household for yeah. some of the time. Right. Okay. So I grew up in a extended family. And I remember consciously thinking as a child and as I grew up, how valuable it was to have different adults in the house with different opinions on things. Yeah. And it wasn't at all a mother-father situation. Like I grew up in a household of five, but it was arguably a household of about 12 because it was a kind of central family house. So I had uncles and aunts and cousins and cats and dogs and whatever, like coming in and out of the house, like all of the time. And that's how I grew up. I grew up with like lots of other people around me. And it freed my mum to not be the person who was always doing my homework with me. She was not always like, taking care of me. She was not always, you know, providing the food. There were loads of people who were doing that stuff in and out. And, and I felt like there was quite a difference between me and other people I knew who grew up in nuclear families. I mean, this is slightly going off topic, but this idea that, because I think one of the stark things there is what it's like growing up with the man of the house, quote unquote. And I didn't grow up with that. It was my grandfather, but it was mostly a massive matriarchy of women. And I think that made a big difference to me because I can compare it having grown up, you know, like in an Arab patriarchal country with other families where there was, you know, the father and the father, capital F, like had a massive influence on what people could do and not do and like the development of what was okay and what wasn't. I mean, that's just my experience with that. And I, yeah, I think it made, I find the idea of growing up with both parents in a house very strange. I know that's what happens to most people in the West. And it's what, you know, a lot of my friends in Egypt as well grow, grew up under. And it, But I can't imagine it, if you know what I mean? Like when you didn't grow up with it, I just think, fucking hell, just me and my parents in the house, that'd be really weird. <laughs> I can't, you know, and it's given me a completely different view, I think. You know, when, um, when I had my daughter, May, uh, my partner Alice is in a band, Chumba Wumba. We've always, um, <laughs> we've always uh, hidden that fact from from you, dear listeners. But um, basically, when when we, everybody in Chumba Wumba had babies about the same time, right? Because there, like, there was literally a gap of two years between one album and the next, and they all we all had to squeeze a baby out quick, basically. So when <laughs> you when had they, to, well, the women know, had I, to. I had a role to play. I don't want to, you know, be explicit for radio. But basically, when me and Alice were discussing, it was like, well, perhaps it won't be so much like a nuclear family because we'll have all our friends will have kids at this at, of the same age. And, you know, when she was young, May did interact with those 
I think is a lot. But like, you know, the structures of capitalism and the structures of life just means that you fall back into a nuclear family unless you really, really push against it. You know, it's that water rolling downhill sort of thing. You know, you, everything's set up for you to fall into a nuclear family structure. No, but there's loads of people in the UK mostly like non-white British people who grow up in extended families. It's not only well, about I think resources. We're talking about, about two different things there to some extent. Okay. You're talking about extended families and I'm talking about just sort of... You're talking about communal, yeah, like a choice, yeah, yeah you, to intentional mm. communities or whatever. Yeah. But the effect, if we're going back to the subject of care, you know, politically it's viewed differently. But if you're going back to the fact of like how many adults are there in a ratio per child? Because I think, and I know this is what everybody has to cope with, so I'm not sneering at it, but the the, the ratio of two adults to a newborn is crazy. Yes. Like there needs to be at least four yeah. or five. Nice. So for, you know, those two people, especially the woman, yeah. to be able to like go for a walk or have a shower, like... It's, you know, if you're able to have more than a shower a week, like it's amazing if you're in your nuclear family. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's really tough. And I mean, I'm, I'm saying this to you guys and you know this, you know, I don't have kids, but it's definitely something that I've observed. So in terms of going back to your point, like whether it's an in, quote unquote intentional community of people that you choose to be living all in one household or connected households, or whether it is your extended family. So you've got grandma, granddad, aunt, uncle, like I did you know, in the same house, you've still got loads of adults. Somebody can hold the baby. Somebody can, you know, cook this. Somebody can get food out of the fridge. Like, it doesn't matter if it's your friends or someone when it comes to that specific care function. You know, one of the interesting things is that, um, like, patterns of child rearing is really quite central to, like, right-wing explanations of how the world is. Yeah, you know, even neoliberal verge, and it's, it's sort of it might go something like this: is that you know that famous "there is no such thing as society" Thatcher quote. Yeah, she says there's just individuals, but there's also families. But there's right? only men so, and women and their families. Yes, okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, so the family is that is is one of the if you've just got individuals and families, then families is one of the things you can use to explain things, you know. And so, yeah, that's why the family is such a focus of of political attention for the from from the right as well as the left, you know, it's child-rearing patterns. So, like, right-wing explanations of generations and generation gaps, they're all focused on, on like, changing fashions of child-rearing. It's like a child-rearing determinism. Now they are, well, it's the, only, it's the only form of, of, of community that the right is willing to acknowledge exists. exists. Yeah, so therefore, if you can explain the world, you've not got a lot of resources to draw on. It's that, like... I mean, that's the sort of neoliberal right, but also the traditionalist yeah, no, yeah, right, okay. including people, you know, it, in the Conservative Party, etc., who don't identify as Thatcherites. They also, it is absolutely one of their repeated tropes, that yeah. the family is the basic unit of society. And so everything has to start from the family and the family has to be seen as the, the irreducible thing. And indeed, the problem, exactly the contradiction where their sets of ideas always fall in on themselves if you try to poke them is that is any recognition that forms of family life are historically variable. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. On our dependent on wider social arrangements. Exactly. And then they always have been. And even though that has changed and morphed over time in terms of the statistics, like there's always been loads of single moms. There's always been people who have like lived and arranged in different ways because human beings are complex and shit happens. Yeah, but they've been more or less visible and more or less penalized those sorts of arrangements during during different historical periods. Well, they have. And also, I mean, it's, it's worth thinking about, well, what is, we talked about this a bit already with the, the voucher stuff, but 
what is the hegemonic normative form of the family today? Well, actually, the hegemonic normative form of the family, which is basically the only one we're, we're all allowed to participate in, isn't, it's not the quote-unquote traditional family, which was only normative for most people from like literally from the 30s to the 70s, like um, the 1930s and 1970s. But, you know, where the mother does most of the care work and, you know, the father goes out to work, it's it's not that. that it, what it is now is the dual-income family where both parents have to go to work full-time. And if they can possibly afford it, things like cleaning and childcare have to be outsourced to low paid workers. And even, you know, I know, you know, I've, I've known people who were cleaners who, who themselves had hired a cleaner. I mean, it was just, I know it's me. Christ, it's cleaners all the way down. And you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's, that's the model. And I think, you know, I, I observed it from the kind of early 2000s, like it, among some of my students. I mean, among some people, there was a sort of pushback against that. And a sort of valorization of the idea, like maybe you can just stay at home and be a housewife, like, but which wasn't really coming from as a reactionary place for some people. It was coming from a sense of the, practical, and yeah, yeah. And it was coming from a sense that that was the only economic. Mo- yeah, it was yeah, also it a sense of sense. resistance to the, the the compulsion to go participate in the labour market. To, you, you could probably put um, the Great British Bake Off and all of those cookery programs. You know, that, that's meant as pawn for things that we can't actually do anymore. We don't have time to do. You know. You have a lot to learn about being parents. Well, we've been talking a lot about childcare. So I, I, so I thought we'd play George McRae's Rock Your Baby, which is a classic. I think it was, it's the first disco record to get into the British charts. was a pianist, an amateur pianist. So he played uh, our piano. But his main thing was New Year's Eve, big family party. And he would get on the piano and just play all evening. There was no- Play and sing too or just play? No, he would just play. And then everyone else would sing. I see. It was a sing-along. Paul McCartney's jaunty little tribute to the uh, popular music of his parents and grandparents' generation was this quite unlikely track from Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 1967, called When I'm 64. And it evokes the, uh, an idea of ageing. When I get older, losing my hair Many years from now Will you still be sending Of 
course, when it was written, 64 would have been the, was the I think it was the retirement age for men, I think. Uh, it would have been younger for women. Of course, now 64, <laughs> now you'll be, very, you'll be very lucky to imagine you're going to have time to <laughs> need and feed anyone when they're 64 because you're still going to be at work. But when it was written, you know, the image that it evoked was the image of a happy retirement. And the song, you know, asks asks the beloved, "Will you care for me when I'm when I'm 64?" Which is a really um, is an interesting interesting way of framing the question. And I guess it does speak to the way in which yeah, it does speak to the way actually in which people's ways of imagining their life course were were changing and were starting to take account of the possibility of retirement, which of course. Yeah, we only had old age pensions from the early 20th century. And to some extent, the whole idea of of, of a really comfortable retirement was a relatively recent invention. Give me your answer, fill in a form, mine forevermore. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? So do we want to answer the question... Can the state be caring? Is there such thing as a caring state, which is a different in on the role of the state in care? Well, I think, obviously, to some extent, an implication of the things we've been talking about is that one one way of responding to a lot of the issues that have been raised by changes in patterns of care and the need for care and the need to pursue certain kinds of social e equality has been the state undertaking provision of certain kinds of services. And I don't think any of us would disagree that to the extent that the state has to be the provider of things like childcare, healthcare, etc., it generally seems to be best when it's done in a relatively universalistic way so that everybody has access to similar services. There's the usual set of issues around any kind of public service, aren't there, that you can make them more or less democratic more or less responsive to local collective needs but i mean this speaks throughout what we were saying about the the attitude of the right to the family actually i mean you, generally speaking traditionalist conservatives part of the discursive and philosophical function of their veneration of the family is precisely i mean the state is one of the things they counterpose to the family actually and they tend to concept they tend to make the assertion that the family is this sort of autonomous organic institution one of their alibis for not really supporting the idea of the state extending its functions they tend to see in fact the state taking on caring functions as part of a general sort of socialist totalitarianism which they want to bravely stand against a lot of the time and what they don't take into account is the extent to which the state, the forms of family life have always been dependent upon institutional arrangements, forms of governmentality, economic relations, etc. And now I guess our position would always be, well, look, actually, 
political relations, institutional relations are always shaping the, the forms of care which people can get and that people can have access to, whether whether it's being done through the direct provision of nurseries in a local area or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, yeah. But I think it's just there's strategic questions about what do you demand in that case or what you do, perhaps. A friend of mine, Christine Berry, wrote this really great article uh, which ends up advocating for the formation of like co-ops around care, like or commonly owned and commonly governed co-ops, basically. And, and she gets there because it's the article's about how the care sector has been heavily financialized over the last sort of five to ten years. So that like there's these huge chains who were uh, uh, run by private equity firms, basically, who are just extracting more and more sort of rents out of it. About ten percent of the, the the sector's income these days goes towards rents, etc. And so her thing is, look, we have to focus not just on how much money the state is spending, but like, like how is it controlled? So that takes you to like the mode of ownership. How is it owned and governed, basically? Mm. Do you know what I mean? I work. She works with me. Me and, me and Christine work together on, on public common partnerships. This is one of the things we've, we've sort of been looking looking into. But it's that thing of like, if you start from what's going on in in, in the care sector, the thing that's really driving like the, the absolute collapse of, of standards is this. It's a mode of ownership at the moment, which is not just private, but assetized. It's been turned into an asset upon which you like leverage, you leverage things, etc. And part of the reason for that is that like it doesn't matter. You know, it's one of those things where you will have to pay for care. <laughs> it's a thing you pay for before anything else. The care of your children, and for older people, of course, it's care most often paid for by selling a house or drawing equity. Something that struck me as you're talking about that care is is you know if we think about carers if, if if we're talking about like carers infrastructure yeah what are we actually asking for some something that that i was thinking about as you're, you're speaking is that is that care is conducted in physical space because it's conducted between human beings uh irl in reality it's conducted in in space and therefore but it's conducted in buildings which is one of the reasons it's so attractive to for like this financialized things. So you get this practice. I'll let you back in in a minute. Sure. <laughs> Basically, these big, these pre-private equity firms, you know, they buy the the, the, the care home. Um, another part, another, another bit of them buys the building. Then it rents the building to the care home for like massively huge, huge rents because it's a way of getting, extracting money out of it. It all goes to the same place. They're charging themselves distorted rents in order to extract. You know, that's the sort of thing that, that goes on. All of that has... The only place it can come from is like worse care and worse conditions for workers. No, no, that makes sense. I guess I was thinking about it from from the perspective of like, what are we asking for or the imaginary of what we want things to look like? And so I was trying to think about that within the for, through the prism of actual physical spaces. Like if some care is conducted in the home, okay, that's one thing. And, you know, there, there are all sorts of visions that we have and imaginaries about what we want the home to look like and how we want to organize, you know, our families and our relations. But also, if we're imagining a care home, what what could that care home look like? But also, I think importantly, like, what can we, what are we asking for to facilitate 
care to be able to take place in 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 public spaces and where are the blind spots of of things that perhaps we 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 still can't see so for example if you look at it historically you know in the way that you know women's public bathrooms like didn't exist and you know there was a whole like men's rights movement over history where against women having places to relieve themselves in public but what that what women's bathrooms then expanded to be able to do is to have baby changing facilities for example which now have been extended into you know some men's bath you know men's toilet blocks which is which is also great but in you know in women's bathrooms as a, as a spontaneous public space that exists you know like definitely all around britain like that is a caring space there's a lot of caring that takes place there whether you know it's changing kids clothes or helping them go to the toilet or helping elderly people etc so because i was thinking about that i was wondering like what other kinds of spaces could you have in a public space that facilitates the caring whether spontaneous or organized of human beings what are the public spaces that we would be demanding that could organize things in a way that would kind of undercut or try to like pre-address in a preemptive strike fashion some of those problems that of being you know having care homes co-opted by private equity etc well i think the answer to that question is always going to be it depends like at what what horizon we're looking to you know are we thinking about what what would be the completely ideal situation in a in a libertarian communist utopia or are we thinking about uh, what what could realistically be part of a reforming government's program in a couple of years' time, and those are all going to be different. Yeah, but they might take one into account in the other. Yeah, yeah, you've got a vision. If you've got yeah. the long game, you know what we what, what we're going to get in fifty. But I think years. it's important. I mean, one of the implications of a lot of what we've said already today is that well, the first demand towards any of this stuff is nothing to do with the direct provision of care or facilities for care. It's to do with the reduction of workloads. Okay. Yeah, that is the first thing because I think we all agreed when we were talking about this that most people have a a pretty basic desire like to be able to be caring towards their friends, their family, their children, their parents, their neighbours, and the number one problem is simply people not having enough free time to be able to do it at all. That what's happened is in fact what's happened to the labour market is women have been is women have had the have been put into the labour market and uh, have not been given any real way of sort of um, nobody nobody really has been um, given the time to um, given the time to do the work women were doing like fifty years ago as the carers in homes. And in but it's also been feminized. It's also been feminized conceptually in society due to patriarchy. That that there is a lot of men that have not been brought up knowing how to care for themselves or other people. Well, that's true. That's like it's not. We're we're saying it's not a. It's not a. It's not a female thing. It's a human thing. No, that's right. But, but I'm just society saying that, has created but the, this division. The, the actual history is. We were at a situation 50 years ago where there was a real historic peak of that sort of gender division of labour, that the idea of the housewife, which, again, it only really becomes normalised in the 30s, mm. had become completely normalised. And, I mean, actually, it, actually, the low point of married women participating in the, in the labour market was before that. It was actually the 1900s. So you can really debate. It's an interesting debate. Really? I'm yeah. surprised no, about was, that. No, it was. It was. No, yeah. What, where? There's in no the question. UK? In the UK and the US. I don't know about anywhere else. 
No, it was. Because what you've got between the 30s and the 70s is you've got these two different trends. You've got the actual the actual demographic trend of more women, more married women going back into the workplaces, especially as like light industry grows. Um, you've got new kinds of factories for things like toys and stuff like that, where they employ a lot of women. And that's growing. But there's this, there's this ideological um, valorization of the idea of the housewife in the in the media in the press and that I mean that really peaks in the 50s but that's mm. but that's partly this is why it all explodes in the 60s because in the 50s is the high moment of the ideology of the housewife but the lived reality is actually mm. more women are going out to work and they can't they can't live Fulfill the ideal that. of the housewife even if they yeah. want to and that all comes apart in the um that all comes apart in the, the 60s the, the model of the housewife um, uh, the unstressed model of the housewife that just doesn't reflect how huge amounts of people have to you know, the, the real huge stresses of being a housewife and doing reproductive work in that era it does explain Valium though if you're on shift work if your husband's on shift work you're doing that reproductive work of preparing dinner etc in the middle of the night from the yeah, yeah back, it doesn't you know. in yeah it, well of course yeah that's absolutely right and that and the whole idea is only invented in the 30s because before the 30s if you're middle if you're a middle class woman then being the lady of the house means managing the servants and if you're a working class woman you're still going out to work so it's really it's a sort of invention of the 30s and the decline of domestic service as much as anything else but anyway the point is the point is from where we are now okay we've come out you know that there was this sort of high moment in the mid 20th century of the ideal of this highly gendered division of labor whereby all care work was entirely feminized was completely feminized I mean, the, the idea of women's role in society being as mothers and mothers being sort of passive, private, domestic carers and, and caring, therefore, essentially just being something that mothers did and anybody who was a carer was something a bit like a mother. All that peaks about 50 years ago. And then what we've transitioned into out of that is a situation in which the women who would, in a, a generation or two ago, have been in that role are now working full time. But what hasn't happened is their workload and those of their partners, be they male or not, have have been reduced so that they can all they can share that labour of caring. They can share that work of caring at home and in the wider family. Instead, what's happened is, you know, people have just been subject to higher and higher levels of stress, and then, you know, c- commercial care work has been, as you just said, been financialized and been turned into this huge sector of extremely low pay work and extremely undervalued work and that's it's completely suboptimal and i but i would say that this is just coming back to the question of what do we want we want all that to change but i would say just number one first demand the easiest demand and the one that most people would immediately accede to is just you know this all this this extraordinary obscene amount of work that men and women are now having to do just to pay the rent and pay the mortgage and pay the bills has to be reduced. Then we can start asking questions about, well, how much, okay, once we're all working a 25 hour week or or even less, once we're there, do we need institutions that provide care? Do we still need, what kind of institutions do we need? I sort of feel like it's almost impossible to answer that question it's almost impossible to answer the question. Because you have to remove the barriers to justice first. (laughs) Yeah, well, we just have to find out because I don't really know. Like if I only had to work a 20-hour week, you know, through my whole working life, 
I don't. I'd probably. I'd. I would want to spend quite a lot of time with my kids and like other people's kids as well. Like for quite a big chunk of my life, I'd have been quite happy. I'd you'd be up, doing. You'd be doing eight hours of role playing games a day. You, you would be both <laughs> of you. You would both be stuck to the computer, going, "No, but I really need to do this." Yeah, I can't believe you guys having any time, quote unquote, free time doesn't work. I'm really good at free time. I'm a Mediterranean. I can really do free time. Let me pose a question, right? In the 1960s in the US, at the height of sort of Fordism, 30% of the population are employed in manufacturing. In the US now, about the same, 28% are employed in care work. Staggering, isn't it? Yeah. So like in terms of like the numbers of, of, of employees, it's really, really dominant care work. But like it is not hegemonic in the way that like that manufacturing work or in alliance with like manufacturing capital was sort of hegemonic at that point. Like why not? So I'll, I'll answer my own question. <laughs> oh, go on then. For, no, it's because it's really hard to to exercise power in care work. In manufacturing, the strike is the way you you you, you exercise power. power basically, mm. you stop that. But with care work, in fact, this is why I think it's useful that teachers are brought into care work. Is that this applies to them in care work? If you withdraw your labour, the immediate effects fall on to those you care for. And, and like normally care about. So it, it's really difficult to, to to exercise your power in that way. Yeah, it and is. And so perhaps perhaps if if the ways are found to exercise power, then care work becomes becomes dominant. Then you see that some of the affects of care work that we've talked about before, you know, becoming an ethic for a new sort of economics. But then maybe a demand is in terms of the level of policy is that you that you that there becomes a government department, a state run department of care workers because then you have everyone quote unquote under one roof and then you can organize them and unionize them, which is completely impossible at the moment because of the way care work is organized. Yeah, well look, I think like basically I think people are working out how you struggle around care work and that's also one of the reasons I want to defend this idea that teachers are care work, because this argument works better. If you look in the US, like the big strikes have been around and organizing has been around sort of care work and also service work, but care work as in like big teacher strikes and huge organization around nursing and janitors, actually. Uh, and then things such as Starbucks, you know, the uni- big wave of unionization there. And the way the way people have thought about it is that... Um, that's not care work. No, that's I know service, it's not. It, that's service work. It is service I work. I don't think this works. I don't think it works. <laughs> no, I don't uh-oh. think... That, well, let me do it with teachers then, right? Let me make this argument with teachers. Is that like, how do you win as a teacher? And how, or how have teachers won? So the Chicago Teachers Union, etc. They've adopted this thing called social unionism. And it's like, the only way your teacher can win is to get the parents on side. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely true, yeah. Yeah, you have to include the parents in the coalition and the way you do that is by, you know, also addressing, trying to struggle around the other grievances that parents have. So, you know, making connections with like, you know, around rents and so forth and all that sort of stuff. This is all true. I just, I, I, I was going to say, I don't think this is as new. I mean, for, it's for, for decades in countries where it's not illegal. For example, public transport workers have won strikes in the same way by making common cause with, by yeah. presenting themselves as like the, the tribunes of the, the customers, the users of the service. Yeah, or, rather or doing than goodwill strikes, etc., where you don't collect fares, but you provide yeah, exactly. the service. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. so the idea that service workers have to build relations of solidarity with the people who use their services is not, is not a new idea, really. And I, I don't think it's exactly the same as, as identifying care workers as a specific category 
I just don't, I don't, but it's not, but it's a really minor technical thing. I mean, it doesn't obviate anything you're saying at all. And it, no, it, no, no, nothing's new, but it is that what is new is that the, the prominence of care work as a, as a yeah. sector of employment is much, much bigger. So, so yeah. all of a sudden this becomes a bigger problem. That's absolutely true. And of course, it's something we haven't mentioned yet. It's partly a function of an aging population. Yeah, that's a really and, good point. And, and yeah. we, haven't talk, we haven't talked about social care. We've talked a lot about childcare. But of course, elder care is the really expanding sector. It's mm. the hugely expanding sector. And, and the politics of elder care and the question of who will care for the elderly, completely central, imminently, implicitly to British politics, because it's central to the gener- the sort of generational and quasi-generational struggles that have taken place and are taking place. And I think absolutely central to the way in which the right has effectively won over the pensioners yeah. is the engineering of a situation whereby you had better make sure the value of your one asset, your the house you've paid off your mortgage on, is protected. Because if it isn't, you are fucked. Yeah, you yeah. are gonna die in a you are gonna die in a gutter, practically. Or you are gonna die in a horrible, underfunded, profit-driven care home, you know, with in, insufficient facilities. And people everybody over 60 knows this and is scared of it. I mean, it was really, this was on New Labour's watch. This was on Gordon Brown's watch that all this happened. You know, the occupational pensions were allowed to be completely flushed down the toilet for everybody, for the, for the people who were in were in their 50s and younger then in the 90s and 2000s, and that there was absolutely no attempt made to build a properly socially provided, nationally provided care service um, means that we've now we are in the situation where Old people are not going to vote for the left, like for a generation, and they're not going to for purely logical, rational reasons that they don't want to die in a gutter, and there's no provision that they're going to have to pay for their own care. And the only way you can pay for it is by remortgaging your house because no one else is providing it. So, I mean, Andy Burnham's big sticks is that is to say that one of Labour's big programmatic policies should be a national care service and I think he's totally right he's totally right but I also say I said this in an interview with Alex Doherty on his show last year sometime he's totally right but the only way we're ever gonna we're ever gonna win back like older voters actually now would be by uh, getting into government and creating that institution because they're never going to believe us that we're going to do it now but it absolutely should be. And, and also just, the, I mean, the treatment of the elderly, this is a cliche, like from anthropologists, from people from other countries. But, you know, historically, it's something that really, really shocks people from other cultures from around the world about the way in which people are treated, especially in the, the kind of liberal capitalist Anglo sphere, you know, America, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, really, really shocking, like the way in which we don't treat it as obviously, just obviously, a responsibility of the community to fully support, to fully support and care for and make have as nice lives as possible. People who have have yeah have lived out their working lives and have worked all their lives. It's just absolutely um, it's appalling. Well, the only discourse in which that kind of exists is the people who are the discourse around the people who have quote unquote fought for this country. 
Yeah. So the only space where you They're can all talk dead, about buddy. that. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but, but you see, World War veterans. No, but you know what I mean. Like, they're not all No, well, dead, I think you've but, hit on a but, good point. You, but that a... is the discourse in which we were able to talk about caring for old people, is about the people who have served in the war, not just because they're human beings. No, no, you're right. I've, ne- I've never thought of that. No, you're completely right. That's We all make fun of this phenomenon of the, the boomer who thinks they fought in the war. But there's a reason for that. It fulfills a social function. No, you're, well, you're right. That's the yeah. point. That Because the discourse of I fought in the war is the only discourse we have, like, widely available in the culture for somebody saying look i i have been like a, a functioning member of society yeah. you know for a certain length of time you know i've it counts for it counts for the whole of that you know i thank you for your service in the us as well basically yeah yeah that that where, is where, the way where, like basically being in the army is the way you can get into college if you're poor you know you need a different language. We see. We need just some notion of basic reciprocity. I mean, this is what happens when you get any you 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 void the culture of any concept of fundamental reciprocity, and you replace it with a purely transactional model, according to which individuals only have claims on the community if they've done something to deserve it, if they've done something to exactly. earn it. And also, I would say, in my in properly factional terms. That that is an argument that has been going on between the left and right of the of even the labour movement in this country since the thirties, and the right. The let's never forget the right wing of the Labour Party did not want the National Health Service, and if you get them drunk enough and off the record enough, they'll still tell you they hate it. They think Attlee should never have made the concession to Nigel. Why Devon are these people in fucking it. Labour? Well, because well, that's a whole other question. <laughs> There's a whole very oh, good shit, because they 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 say that about us. They say Nye Bevan should never have yeah, been let no, back I into know. the Labour Party, should never have been readmitted in the 30s after he was suspended for supporting a you know popular front against fascism, should never have been let back again. They should never have done the National Health Service. They should have done what they did with the rest of the welfare system, which is a social, a contributory social insurance model, where you only get service if you have somehow earned it. You don't get service. You don't get care just because you're a human being who happens yeah. to live in the country. Yeah. So that has always been their fucking position. And the left, we have always said, it's socialism or barbarism. We have always said, if you do everything on that contributory model, you don't end up with a, a society of responsible, respectable subjects who who you know uh, work hard and earn their keep and fulfil their responsibilities. You get What you end up instead with is a society based entirely on transactional relationships where nobody cares for anybody, where the very idea of caring is seen as somehow pathological. Unless it's self-care. Unless it's self-care. You need to take a moment, self-care. Nadia, I've told you before, don't (laughs) mention the Labour right in his... (laughs) (laughs) Don't Um, mention the Labour right. (laughs) This uh, leaflet that was issued, very, very straightforward. What year was this? This was 1948. Your new National Health Service begins on the 5th of July. What is it? How do you get it? It will provide you with all medical dental and nursing care. Everyone, rich or poor, man, woman or child, can use it or any part of it. There are no charges except for a few special items. There is no insurance qualifications, but it is not a charity. You are paying for it mainly as taxpayers, and it will relieve your money worries in times of illness. Now, somehow that the few words sum the whole thing up. We should play uh, Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave just because it's a great song and I like it.
is two ways of, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm just trying to think on a hoof about like what the politics are of saying the state should provide and, you know, I think it is the right thing to do for me not to care for my elderly parents. It's a state that cares for the elderly parents. Or the idea that, you know, my, my elderly parents come and live with me. Or there's there's various ways of doing it. And, of course, in the UK, again, mostly in non-white populations, but informally, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not saying like it's one or the other. But, you know, like the idea that you would put your parent in a care home is just still quite bizarre to a lot of people. But you have to have the resources to make that work. And also it means that there will be people in the household who are effectively 24-hour carers for someone who's very old. And that means all of the things. It means washing their bodies. It means wiping their bum. Hard, it means hard work, all of yeah. that. You know? no, I think you're right. It's a really nice way of framing the question as to what we want. Like, what do we want when we're old? I don't want to have to live with my kids when I'm like 70. Like, fuck that. I don't want to like be that. I want to live in a state-funded holiday home where me and Keir can play role-playing games all day. I thought you were going to say golf for a second. Until we're too arthritic to roll the dice and then we'll call it a day. That's what I want. <laughs> what the hell are you two doing? It's called rocking out. You wouldn't understand, Dad. You're not with it. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. No way, man. We're going to keep on rocking forever. 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 Is care and, and the sort of attributes of care, does that provide an ethic upon which we'd want to reform society? Because people have suggested that. There's a book by Joan Tronto called caring democracy and like she says democratic politics should only be should only be about assigning responsibilities of care and then making sure that that like everyone is able to participate in that assignment of responsibility so that puts a, a you know that makes that means that like caring is suddenly a social responsibility and in fact it's the main focus of all democratic deliberation does that work yeah, I mean, I'll take it. It's not <laughs> say the same thing. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, all right. <laughs> this is what happens because because Kia's working on public-private partnerships, so he's used to talking in this policy language. It's like, yeah, all right, yeah, go on. Well, there's, there, it's, it's, it, there is there's a, pr a profound philosophical tradition which, in in some ways, goes back to Heidegger, saying that the idea of care, in its most abstract sense, is just the basic relationship to the world hmm. of a subject who is engaged with the world, like to care like caring about something is just the basic form of a kind of meaningful relationship to the world. And so there's a philosophical tradition that, that draws on those kind of ideas and also draws on feminist ideas and on of the observation that, indeed, the forms of social activity we've historically associated with things like mothering are, in fact, the, just the basic form of social activity, full stop. And all of the, and that tradition of thought does make some very profound claims that indeed we should make care and an ethics of care the fundamental orienting ideas of some kind of progressive liberatory or emancipatory politics uh, and but, but my response is yeah well fine we could do that and i'd be it'd be I, i'd be up for it you can make similar claims about ideas like democracy or freedom like we've mm. talked about like david graber's he's got one of the definitions of care he says care work is about enabling the freedom of others He's got the parent child involved in that, you know, care, caring for elderly people or, or perhaps disabled people, differently abled people. Is there no comforting in that definition? Yeah, because comfort is, 
you comfort somebody to build them up so they can be a bit more autonomous. Yeah, I that's think the, that's, that's right. a definition, and therefore, if you if you add that to like the the caring democracy, I like its functionality. I just don't know it's true. But it's also, I think, his argument would then be if care work is expanding in the in the numbers of people employed in it, if care work can be made hegemonic, then you are going into a society in which which is focused on enabling the freedom of others, which is much more of an attractive thing than just saying you know, getting in meetings and deciding who gets cared for and how is the aim of all, the whole of society. Yeah, what about Umbrella by Rihanna? You know, that is, is that the, the central metaphor is um, come and stand under my umbrella, you know, and it's like collectively we'll weather will weather the tough times or something like that. You have my heart and we'll never be worlds apart Maybe in magazines But you'll still be my star Baby, cause in the dark You can't see shiny cars And that's when you need me there It's very potent. It's very. It's important track umbrella. I mean, it more or less consolidates. I, I, that's the track I always say consolidates a form of pop music, which will remain pretty much dominant until uh, very recently, at, the, at least for a really long time. It's one of those. I like. I, I love playing that track to students and, and like pointing out when it was recorded because it like could have been any time in the past twenty five years. is you don't have anything to give that you don't have so you have to keep your own self full that's your job well of course as we said the only form of care that advanced capitalist society tolerates or doesn't regard as in some way demeaning to be to be rewarded at best with very low pay and ununionized labor or in some sense pathological is self-care so what do we think about the prevalence of the discourse of self-care even within progressive politics to some extent well first i think let's talk about i don't know the answer to this when when this kind of discourse came about because i feel like this discourse is in the in the in the 2010s like this is only like you know less than 15 years old it might be more than that, but the prevalence of talking about the importance of self-care and you can only care for other people if you care for yourself, which, by the way, I think is bollocks, um, is like it's very, it's very, very strong and prevalent. It's a hegemonic discourse now. I mean, one of the popularizing sources of it was is Foucault. One of Foucault's late books is called the English title is "The Care of the Self." And I don't even know if that phrase, to what extent that phrase self-care was used. Like, really? You, I, I didn't mm. think those things were related, but maybe that's, I'm not, I'm thinking this is a, this is a, 
uh, this is a, it's come out because capitalism has recognized that it needs a coping mechanism to convince workers that on an individualized plane of where they're supposed to seek the resources in order not to go mental so they can continue to be productive workers. Yeah, it has. Yeah. I just think, I, I just think the fact that that book, The Care of the Self is on like a, you know, a thousand liberal arts reading lists in the states i'm sure it's contributed to the popularization of that specific phrase that is interesting I'd, I'd sort of i'd sort of locate it more in like wellness communities and you can trace that back you know into not quite counterculture but that you know sort of new age sort of scenes from the from the late 90s yeah but the specific phrase self-care like you never heard it you didn't hear it we never but heard it's the it same with wellness ago. is that it's like there's a there's there's a there's a continuum isn't it with like if you're talking about like buddhist meditation mm. on one end and then you've yeah. got like gwyneth paltrow's like wellness industry on the other hand hand it's a continuum between like the importance of like on a philosophical level like the position of the self you know, in in the world, and then you've got it all the way down to, you know, like self-care is me going to a spa, which is, by the way, something that I would quite like to do, but like where that positions in itself in society and who takes responsibility for making me not feel burnt out, which is another concept, which is a modern concept, right? I suppose the most egregious examples of self-care is when self-care is used as an excuse not to care about other people, you know, like as in, um, I'm not going to, cares for mm. my friends because you know i need to pick a bit of me time etc <laughs> which sort of uh self-care uh fall, falls over into selfishness but then again you two always say i'm not i'm not very good at self-care so uh... i mean i think i think you're right but it, the, i guess what i'm interested in is is like how how that manifests itself on a like meta level in society it's like what like the like I'm I'm interested in the analytical point there. Like what's going on if there is a discourse which allows people a kind of get out of jail card? Because what's actually happening in terms of like caring for other people or paying attention to other people, what that tells me is that there's a population of people or a group of people who are frazzled and burnt out and overstimulated from social media. I mean, that's a caricature, but that's what happens when you go, I just need to lie down and I can't, you know, do this thing or whatever, or care for this person. Like that, that's what we're talking about mm. here. And what the, the, the self-care discourse does is basically it's telling people that's your time out. It's like a time out for kids. And it, this part of the whole infantilization discourse that sits above that in my view where you're saying what you need is you need you know like you need quiet time on the step to like cope with the world around you when actually in a in a kind of more what i would say normal or healthy rhythm of life like you would have the headspace to be able to like go out and want to see your friends and be in crowds and whatever because you're not working and under those kind of pressures. Yeah, there's no question the discourse and rhetoric of self-care rises in a, as a, in a direct index to the decline of social re- types of social relations, which would produce the sense of people of being cared for. And socialising as yeah. well, like forms of socialising, especially just, after the pandemic. And just yeah. not even feeling necessarily like you need to be cared for. I mean, if you're not overworked, 
and you and your friends have enough time and energy to do nice things together and help each other look after the kids and look after sick relatives and all that stuff, then then your general stress levels are going to be much lower and you're not going to think about how you need self-care so much. So, I mean, the trouble with the discourse of self-care is it both normalises the stress levels, which are typical of advanced capitalist societies, and then it tells people, well, the way to deal with that is even more individualised, privatised forms of activity. That that normalisation point is a huge thing, and it, and I what really pisses me off is the way that the discourse discourse goes and talks about it, then extends into mental health and says the reason why you know that we've got all of these people who have all of these mental health problems is because now we can talk about it. It was the same number before, but we just didn't realise it. But now we're talking about it. It's like no, actually, the discourse. The, the discourse is just a reflective of the fact of like what's happened in society and where we've got to, and we shouldn't accept that as normal. I've got a T-shirt that my sister gave me that says, um, "Demolishing patriarchy is self-care," which I think that would be about pretty much sum up our attitude. I think a lot of the time, but I mean, the other side though is that, as we said when we were preparing the show, I think I tend to think that self-care is it's like the nuclear family. It's it's an institution and a set of practices which are clearly suboptimal from an objective perspective, but also the reality of life in the world that we actually live in is that they frequently they become the only things that will keep someone alive. You know, just because you recognise objectively that it would have been preferable if various social institutions hadn't been dismantled doesn't mean they have been, you know, it doesn't alter the fact they've been dismantled and we can't just wheel ourselves into sort of autonomous, mutually caring collectives, like even if we, we want them to be there. So from that point of view, I, don't, I think it is true. I think the discourse of self-care within the left, I think, is quite important a lot of the time. I think it is, you know, it, it does often fulfil a useful function of encouraging people, you know, not... I mean, I think actually there's a, there's a bad discourse of self-care and there's a good discourse of self-care. I would say, actually, thinking about this, like one reason why Mark, you know, Fisher's became this like huge sort of cult figure. I think I actually think the thing that so many people responded to that was sort of implicit in some of what he was saying, the thing and the thing that really made people have this emotional relationship to it was he was he was sort of fumbling around for something that would be something like a positive discourse of self-care that would start from the point at the first point the first thing you have to do in order to undertake self-care under these circumstances of advanced neoliberalism is to realize that it isn't your fault the first thing yes. you have to do yes and that is and that does and that does it's quite ne- profound you have to accept that it isn't your fault. I mean, it's profound. It wasn't in any way original. You know, it was it was original. It was only original to people who had not had the privilege of being exposed to you know a whole set of radical ideas. But for Most the people for the people to whom it was new, you know, it's very if it's if it's the first time somebody has said that to you, then yeah, it's hugely profound and it's hugely liberating. And and that is, I mean, just inescapably, unfortunately, you know, because of how we live in advanced neoliberal society, it does have to sort of start as a form of self-care. The first, you do have to start, whether you like it or not, in theory, with that observation that you have to move away from the ways in which neoliberal ideology will try to make you feel like everything that happens to you is your own fault. And that does, that does have to be experienced Exactly. It's, and that does have to be experienced as a form of self-care, or it doesn't work, I think. If we're talking about the practices that you 
will engage in as a human being, probably on a daily level to keep yourself. And I, I don't necessarily want to talk about it within the frame of like a coping mechanism. But, you know, we've talked about exercise before. We've talked about sleep before. We talked about meditation. We've talked about, you know, seeing and engaging with other people. Like those would all fall under what is now called practices of self-care. I think all of, and, you know, eating well, you know, engaging with nature, all of these things, these are things that I definitely, for one, and I know you guys feel the same way, I, I think are crucial and form part of like my daily routine, which I'm actually quite strict about to make sure that I am happy. But the discourse of the discourse of self-care and the way that it 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 delinks this from the economic and cultural reality that we're living under as some kind of like it's a, a fait accompli set of conditions is the problem and what continues to we need to continue to problematize i think you're right about all of that and i also think i've said this before on the show i think we do have to accept that they are just coping mechanisms i think that's the you have to be realistic about that with a lot of things you have to because otherwise i mean one of the problems I, I think it's a it's actually a weakness of a certain kind of left discourse so you have to sort of justify everything you do with reference to the fact that it's radicalizing or it's resistance or something and i think it's more helpful a lot of the time just to accept that we do need it takes an awful lot just to cope with this shit right now given how bad it is and but i'm sorry it's also biological like eating well and sleeping enough is something that human beings need like you might need to not have to do that for a few years yeah. in your no, life that's but, true yes but you're you know right. like like that's what being health the, the the left also has a has had a culture or parts of the left of like you know this like what this work hard die young sort of thing which i'm not into <laughs> like, no, know, i agree I, I agree that kind of you know i agree it's a it's a legacy of a certain kind of Puritan masochism, exactly. It's a revolutionary masochism, and it doesn't self-sacrificing militant, yeah. which is a, which a lot of the time is it comes from a Christian, a cultural Christian background, which I have a big issue. It's a good with. point, actually. I think it comes from a Christian background. I also think it comes from it. This is one of my bugbears that people don't know any history apart from the history of the Russian Revolution. So everybody wants to be Lenin. And what yes. I'm saying is, yeah, if we're in a pre revolution if we when when we are in a proper pre-revolutionary situation, then yeah, let's all not sleep for three years and devote ourselves to the revolution. Fine. I mean, it won't when take that much because we did all, that. In, we did that in 2019. <laughs> so <laughs> for six weeks, all the history shows if you if you try. To to live like that when you're not in a pre-revolutionary situation is you have a breakdown and go mental you'll like, kill all the intelligent people which is yeah. not what we want i mean what do we ultimately want what is what do, what do we think we ultimately want out of all this discussion and what would we as a progressive movement want and i think what we would want is firstly we want a, a reasonable distribution of care we want a situation to be achieved whereby no one person has too much of a burden of caring for others fall on their shoulders such that it becomes intolerable and painful and not enjoyable and exploitative. And we also want a situation in which those who, when we, when it is necessary that care be conducted by professionals who are doing it full-time or part-time, that care work be absolutely valued. I mean, one of the most obscene features, I think, of our society is the fact that nurses are so underpaid the teachers are underpaid the child carers are incredibly underpaid 
And again, in my experience, this is something that people on the right just cannot argue with. And they they do, even people quite far to the right of us, do share that intuition. If you say to them, look, is it not obscene how little nurses get paid and the people looking after our kids get paid, given how important the work they do is? Very few people will argue with that. They'll try to argue, some will try to argue with it in terms of like supply and demand of labour, but it's only the really hardcore neoliberals that do. And I think it's a really powerful emotional argument that does resonate with people. So I think that should be our position that, you know, caring, it should be the conditions necessary for caring to be joyful should be available to everybody. And when we do need it to be conducted by professionals, they should be the most highly valued members of our society, not the least. I wonder what's wrong.